So what do we do after that? What do we do, brethren? Souls being saved. Difficult, difficult circumstances. Not just in Mexico, thankfully, but in many other countries of the world. What do you do? You say, well, brother, I pray about going to Mexico. Well, maybe you should. But there's something you can do straight away. We'll read about it in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians and chapter 1. Verse 15 of Ephesians 1, Paul says, Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Now, will you do that? Seriously, now, will you do that? With respect, I don't think any of us is as busy as Paul the Apostle was. And Paul could maybe say, well, you know, I've got enough on my plate. I've got lots to do. I've got lots of things. But no, he hears of how the purpose of God is being wonderfully fulfilled in Gentiles whom he once despised with a degree of Bitterness and hatred that we couldn't understand. And he's heard of how not only have Gentiles been saved, but people who are Jews by birth have been saved. And Jew and Gentile are now gathering together in Ephesus under the name of the Lord Jesus. And he's thrilled by it. He's absolutely thrilled by it. And he says, brethren, you know, from the moment I heard of your faith and the fact that the reality of that faith was demonstrated in your love one for the other, that is, Jew and Gentile. Because if the Jew despised the Gentile, well, you know, the feeling was pretty mutual. And now they're united in Christ. And Paul's going to lift up his heart and give thanks. And we have the first of his lovely prayers in Ephesians chapter 1. I suppose there are parallels, in a way, with the, the prayer of Daniel. We thought about in Daniel chapter 9. Daniel was reading Jeremiah 25, as we know it, and he saw divine purpose coming to fruition. Now, that was exciting for him. It's one thing to know that God has a purpose, and it's another thing to see it happening before your eyes. And so Ephesians begins with, This tremendous high truth concerning the fact of divine, sovereign election unto salvation. Of those who were thus saved, predestinated unto the adoption of sons. Wonderful truth. Of how all that divine purpose was now being realized... Upon believing. 
See, so in that way that neither you nor I can understand divine sovereign purpose, people who were the objects of divine sovereign purpose before time began have now individually, responsibly believed the gospel and have exercised faith to the saving of their souls. Now, how those two things go together, I simply don't know, but the Bible tells me they do, and Ephesians chapter 1 proves it. So Paul says, here's this wonderful high truth concerning the, uh, the purpose of God from before ever time began. And he said, not only do I see divine purpose, but I see it being realized. That's what thrilled Daniel. Divine purpose being realized. That, that the people were soon to be delivered from their bondage. And Paul has the same excitement. Here's, here are these great doctrines, but they're not doctrines to be argued about, brethren. They're doctrines, first of all, to cause us to say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We sometimes miss that bit, don't we? You know, we love to argue over whether election means selection and whether election means individual or corporate and whether God really chose me and how does that square and we think we're so smart and we love to argue the thing out till three in the morning and we miss the whole point of it. The whole point of it is that we bless God. God's not asking us to reason it. He's giving us a revelation of divine purpose. He's bringing us into something of his eternal counsels that we might bless him. That we might fall on our knees and acknowledge him to be the glorious God that he is. And Paul says, you know what thrills me? You know what's so tremendous? There's these huge truths that we just can't wrap our heads around. But he says, I see it in practice. I see it. There's you dear folks in Ephesus. And upon believing, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. So that upon believing, the moment that you exercised faith savingly in Christ, the full benefit and efficacy of the work of Christ was reckoned to you. And so thorough, so complete is that mighty work of salvation that immediately a divine person can come and indwell you at no expense to his own holiness and his own comfort. Have you ever thought of that? Really? We who are saved, that upon believing, we were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. Huge, isn't it? So what's the response, Paul? Well, he says the response is, it makes me pray. I give thanks and it makes me pray. Are you going to pray for those dear folks down in Mexico? Do you pray for the souls saved in India? Do you pray for souls saved locally? Do you pray for your fellow believers? Well, what does Paul pray? Let's just see what he prays for them. Verse number 17, Ephesians 1. He, he, has, to, he has two requests, really, in this lovely prayer. His English isn't very good. Mind you, he didn't write it in English, of course. But if he had, he would have had extra homework in the school that I came from because so far, up to verse 14, he's only used one sentence. Well, from verse number 3. 
You know, so from verse 3 to verse 14, he's used one sentence. Now he's going to use just one more sentence. And as you know, Shad's told us, he makes things up. You know, if, if Paul can't find a word that suits him, he'll make one up. But you see, we're not interested in the grammar of the thing in that sense. He's trying to get something of the enormity of this to us. So now he's praying in verse 17, this next sentence begins, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Did you catch that? What would you pray for newly saved people? Are are these folks pretty literate down there, Shad? You know, they can read, write, most? Okay, yeah. You know, sometimes if we're not involved in this kind of work, we have very clear-cut opinions. Well, you know, they should do this, they should do that, and... Do you know, the, the, the problems are massive when you're dealing with people who get genuinely saved and they can't read. You can't say to them, go and do the Berean thing, search the scriptures and see if these things be so. Mind you, Shad's seen it, I've seen it. It's wonderful how the Spirit of God compensates for those difficulties. So you see, Paul is praying for people who, by and large in Ephesus, have been saved straight out of idolatry. Straight out of idolatry. They wouldn't have known a Bible if it had fallen on their head. They know nothing. They have zero background in spiritual things. In fact, all they've been used to in Ephesus is magic and the occult and the spirit world. That's why five times over in this epistle, Paul speaks to them about heavenly places, that very unseen, real spiritual realm. Remember, it was in Ephesus, they they burned 50,000 bits of silver's worth of books, all in this magic and stuff like this, sorcery. And so these people know absolutely nothing. So what are you going to teach them, Paul? What are you going to pray for? Well, I'm going to pray that they understand baptism. I'm going to pray that they understand about uh, coming into the assembly, covering their head, wearing a suit. No, says Paul. This is my sincere prayer. That God, the Father of glory, not really so much an expression of his, uh, of his outshining majesty, but rather the one who's glorifying himself and what he's doing. The, the one in whom all this originates. He's got purpose, you see. And, and these people just newly saved, and who are going to be such hard work for those who are going to be dealing with them, they are the objects of divine purpose. They didn't just get saved by accident. They just didn't get saved because, well, particularly that day, somebody came along and preached. These people have been the objects of divine purpose since time began. So now, says Paul, I pray that the Father of glory would give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, of him, of divine persons. Brethren, we don't get much ministry on it, do we? When did you last hear a series on the character of God? Or on the person of Christ? What makes God God? What are his features? What are his attributes? I don't know, maybe you did hear stuff on that recently. We didn't at home. But Paul's first desire is that they might know 
him. Because once you've got a right thinking of God, everything else is going to flow out of it. Once you've got a right thinking of Christ, everything else is going to flow out of it. The first representative New Testament assembly that was ever formed was in Antioch in Acts chapter 11. Now, there was a church in Jerusalem, we understand that. They met from house to house, and there was a huge number of Christians in in Jerusalem, but they were all saved out of Judaism. Then the time came in the purpose of God that Gentiles would hear the gospel and get saved. That happened in Antioch. Don't know who the evangelists were. They were just people who dispersed in the persecution that followed the stoning of Stephen. They went, and everywhere they went, they spoke about the Lord. People got saved. And when news of that came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, they sent Barnabas. And Barnabas came down to Antioch, and the scripture says, and when he saw the grace of God, he was glad. How do you see grace? It's a principle. How do you see it? Well, you see it in practice. There it was, Jew and Gentile, mutually and historically, implacably opposed to each other. And they're sitting in fellowship one with the other. That's how you see the grace of God. That's how Paul knew the faith of these people was real. They'd love one toward another. Specifically in the context, Jew and Gentile, one toward the other. What did Barnabas do? When he saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all with purpose of heart to cleave unto the Lord. Why? Because the moment somebody gets saved, they come under the Lordship of Christ. And that happened to you. If you're saved, you're under the lordship of Christ. So why are many of you living as though you're not? This isn't theory, this is reality. What think ye of Christ is the test to try both our state and our scheme. We cannot be right in the rest unless we think rightly of him. Get Jesus Christ as Lord in the right place. Everything else will follow. Won't be a problem. That's why we need it, brethren, you see. So now Paul is praying for these believers that they would know, first of all, this spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. A knowledge of divine persons. That's his first request. And that would come through the eyes of their understanding being enlightened. So that means that that spirit of wisdom and revelation is the Holy Spirit. It's one of his ministries is to bring divine truth and a knowledge of divine persons to the Christian. What else does he pray for? Verse 18. For the sense, you could add the little words, I also pray that ye may know what is the hope of his calling. So now, if we add those little words, I also pray that ye may know, now you're going to find the little expression, what is, or what, three times. So that ye may know what is the hope of his calling, number one, what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, number two, what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power. Now, all these things Paul is praying for these brand new, first generation, straight out of idolatry Christians. Think of the heritage that there is out here. 
Now, how much of this are you happy with yourself? Come back to that firm foundation that dear brother Bill was speaking about. How much do you appreciate, my brother, my sister, how much have you prayed about, read about, thought about, considered the grounds of your salvation? say, well, I'm saved and I'm going home to heaven. But this doctrine of the gospel, yes, of course, it needs to be known and understood by the preacher, but it needs to, it's the grounding of every Christian. And Paul is praying about these things that many of us today would kind of say, mm, that's a bit kind of deep, that. He's looking for this to be the knowledge and experience of first-generation, brand-new Christians. What is the hope of his calling? Well, the calling began before time. They were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Now they have heard the effectual call through the gospel. They've exercised faith to the saving of their souls. And now Paul is praying that they might understand what is the hope of that calling. That is, what is the goal of it? He's spoken to them about where it all began. Now he says, Lord, I want them to understand what's the goal of it all. Where's it all going to finish up? Well, he's already spoken to them about the fact that, that yes, they were chosen in Christ. That's the truth of election. But then he also brought in the truth of predestination, and it's not the same thing. Election is the question of God choosing before time began, chosen in Christ before time began. But predestination is a truth concerning those who are saved. It's a truth concerning believers. And the truth of predestination is, well, if we turn to the Roman epistle in chapter 8, we would find that it is that ultimately we will be conformed to the image of his Son. So that's part of the hope of their calling. That's the goal of it. Why did God call them at all? It's so that one day they would be conformed to the image of his son. Here in the Ephesian epistle, he links predestination with adoption. That is the placing of sons. So these people, these idolaters, who uh, were guilty in the regular course of their life of many heinous sins, and, um, well, you know, if we had a couple people saved like that, we'd have some difficulties in our local assemblies dealing with them, wouldn't we? In fact, sometimes I think we're a bit frightened about who God just might save and the baggage that they might bring with them. You want baggage? These people got baggage. Lots of it. But look what Paul has taught them already. Go back earlier in the chapter. Verse 2 these salutations that we like to skip over, grace be to you and peace from God our Father. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in verse 3 is God our Father in verse number 2. So if he's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
and he's our father as well, well, that means we are vitally linked in family relationship now with Christ. God is the father of him, and he's the father of you. So now he's telling them something about the process of it all. He's praying that God in his goodness would show them something of the end result of that calling. And are you thrilled by that in your own experience? That you were personally and individually the subject of divine counsel. You were the subject of the discussion and the planning and the thought and the love of divine persons before a universe was brought into being. And here you are saved by the grace of God. Why? Well, Paul's already explained that to them as well. You take another look at the chapter, and you would find verses 3 to 6. We could write over that, the will of the Father. Verses 3 to 6, the will of the Father. How does it finish in verse 6? To the praise of the glory of his grace. That's why. Why was the will of the Father what it was? So it might be to the praise of the glory of his grace. Then, in verses 7 to 12, he tells them about the work of the Son. What Christ has done. What's the purpose of it? Verse number 12. That we should be to the praise of his glory. Then in verses 13 and 14, he's going to tell them about the witness of the Spirit. For what purpose? Verse 14. Unto the praise of his glory. Now, my brother, my sister, I know we've had a great lunch and many, many thanks to the dear saints who worked so hard to bring it to us. But come on, you've had Shad's report to sleep through. So now just, that's no disrespect to Shad. I mean, he, you know, just let this touch your heart if you would. That everything God has done in your life so far and will do is for the praise of his glory. It's for the eternal praise of the glory of his grace. The eternal God of glory has done it because he wanted to. And now look at this. As he's praying that they would understand the hope of his calling, verse 18, and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. What's that saying? What is the wealth of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? It means this. He's not talking now about the inheritance that you and I have got. He spoke about that earlier in the chapter. He's speaking now about, may I put it like this? What has been the wealth, what has been the return to God out of Calvary? His inheritance. Something for God. Paul's praying that these new believers would understand that now they are not under capricious gods who, like all the false gods of the world, both then and now, are simply enlarged versions of men with all their vices. 
See, man, man in his fallen state is so rebellious and arrogant against God that he cannot perceive, he cannot think of any being higher than himself. Man is the highest being as far as unfallen man is concerned. But now he has got a, well, it's often been described as a God-shaped hole in his, in his heart, in his soul. So now how's he going to fill that? Now he's rejected the true God. How's he going to fill that? Well, he's got to have a deity. So, I found out in my years of seeking to serve the Lord in India that they have over 350 million documented deities in that country. But you know, every one of them will be either a man, a woman, or an animal that is possessed of kind of superpowers and things like this. But ultimately, they are versions of men with all the faults and failings of men amplified. Now, that's how these Greek gods were that these these Ephesians had worshipped. So you see, their false gods who were in a fatalistic way kind of in control of the lives of these people, these gods whom they sought to propitiate in their various temples, were, were, they were gods like themselves but turbos. So they, they, they had drunken parties and orgies and they fornicated and they, they, they woke up in the morning with bad hangovers and when they did, lightning bolt, you see. So people died and... Yeah, we can kind of smile about it, but that was very, very real for these people. And it still is for people in idolatry today. It's tremendously real. And so their lives are at the whim of vile, uncaring, capricious gods. And now they're finding that the moment that they exercise faith, they heard the gospel and upon believing were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And they've now... They've now been brought into living relationship with the eternal God of glory who had them in his heart from the very beginning and who's got a purpose for them. And not only that, Paul prays that they would understand the wealth of his inheritance in them. So, so I hope my language doesn't in any way detract from the wonder of Calvary. But it's like this. Calvary was an enormous, enormous cost to God. But he considered it all worthwhile to have you and me in his family. Brethren, if that doesn't cause us to bless God, I don't know what would. Have you become used to it? Have you ever really thought about it? The wealth of his inheritance in the saints. Far, far now from being under the influence of some capricious, spiteful God, they are now in a living relationship with a God who's demonstrated the intensity and the eternality of his love for them. And God considers them enormously precious. My dear young brother, dear young sister, do you come from a home, perhaps you're the only one saved? I don't know. I can't sympathize with you. I'm sorry. I had the privilege of being brought up in a Christian home. But maybe there's dear believers here today, and in one sense, spiritually, you feel a very low esteem. 
And you perhaps look longingly at those who've got Christian husbands, wives, families, and, and you feel sometimes so isolated, and, and it's tough. Would you understand this today? You're part of the wealth of God's inheritance in the saints. Seriously now, you are enormously precious to him. Why, he's purchased you with the blood of his own. It's real. Would you pray that those dear new believers down in Mexico would understand this? Would you? I don't know how prayer works. I mean, I'm sure God wants them to know that anyway. But one thing you realize when you work in things like this is that everything's not just as clear-cut as it is when you're sitting in a comfortable chair back home. It's hard. It's hard for Shad. It's hard for his brethren and sisters. And it's hard for these dear people. And they're caught up in superstition and culture and, and all kinds of things. And we're so blessed. Paul prayed for them. Would you do that? Seriously now, would you do that for these people down in Mexico that you've just heard about? That they would understand not only, not only what is the goal of the whole thing, that ultimately God is going to make them exactly like Christ. But would you pray that they would, that they would understand when they get, when they get persecution and difficulty from unsaved husbands and wives and family members, would you pray that they would have a real deep sense in their soul that they're part of the wealth of God's inheritance? In a sense. What else did you pray for? What is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe? What does that mean? Well, Paul's going to explain it in a little kind of digression from verse 20 to verse 23. He's going to speak about the enormous, mighty power of God that brought Christ again from the dead. And he's going to show them that that same power is at their disposal. Now, God was bound, I speak very carefully and reverently, God was bound to raise Christ from the dead because of who Christ is and because of what he had done. God was bound by the honor of his own name to raise Christ from the dead. Now, that's not the only reason he raised him. You understand that. But, but in the context, that's what he did. You notice that in verse 17, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't speak about the fatherhood of God there. He just says the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's emphasizing the manhood of Christ. Christ was a dependent man. And he went to Calvary, and he gave his life a sacrifice to do that great work upon which the whole purpose of redemption is based. And how do you and I know that that was effective? What assurance do we have? God raised him from the dead. So that the man who died now lives. God raised him. And that very power that God exercised in raising that man from the dead, he has exercised toward you. How do we know that? Because chapter 2 begins, you have he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. It's enormous, isn't it? dead in trespasses and sins, and that same power that he wrought in raising Christ from the dead, he wrought on your behalf and mine. 
I suppose at times when we're trying to get some estimate in our mind of the sheer power of God. We think of creation. That's sensible. Romans 1 tells us it is. The invisible things of God from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So you think of the enormous power of an eternal God who out of nothing can call everything. And he does so according to purpose so that though God is seen, the Father is seen as the architect of creation, the actual work is attributed to the Lord Jesus. By him were all things made. But then what he made, the Spirit of God energized. You see that in Genesis 1. So, so that in the, in the creation of a universe, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit work together in wonderful harmony. What the Father designs, the Son brings into being, the Spirit of God energizes. Great. All things were made by him. And without him was not anything made that was made. What does that mean? Is John just repeating himself? No. All things were made by him. Fact. Okay, so everything was brought into existence by Christ. And apart from him, nothing was made that was made. In other words, nothing was made for its own sake. Everything that God made in this beautifully, wonderfully, complexly designed universe, everything was ultimately designed to bring glory to Christ. So that apart from him, nothing was made that was made. Nothing was made for its own sake. That's in creation. Listen to 1 Peter 1 and verse 2. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, sanctified by the Spirit unto obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. That's how you were saved. The very same divine persons who moved in harmony to create a universe, those very same divine persons moved in harmony to save your soul and mine. The Father was the architect, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. The Spirit of God was the energizer, sanctifying us, that is, setting us apart, illuminating your soul as to the truth of the gospel when you heard it. So that, so that preaching the gospel is not a matter of me persuading men as to what's right and what's wrong. It's me being a faithful messenger of divine things and the Spirit of God graciously illuminates the soul and the mind of the person who hears so that they understand in perfect clarity God's claims upon them. They see their need. They see the, the sufficiency of Christ to meet that need. And, and they are brought to a point where all that is required is the obedience of faith. Now, you didn't know that when you got saved, but that's how God was working. And the moment you savingly put your faith in Christ, you came, as Peter describes it, into the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. You understand that blood being shed in Scripture is always for the eye of God. But the sprinkling of blood that has been shed 
is for the blessing of those on whose behalf it has been shed. You see it in Exodus 12. Blood shed for the eye of God. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. But it was the application of the blood by faith that secured the safety of the firstborn. So, when divine persons created a universe, they worked together in perfect harmony, wonderful design. But may I say very reverently, when the triune Godhead created the heavens and the earth, it cost them nothing. God could speak again at this very moment and call another billion universes into being. But when those same divine persons work together for the saving of your soul and mine, cost God the blood of his own. Do you not feel something of the enormity of what it means to be saved? It's not some haphazard thing. It's not something that happened to you by chance. The same God who built order and design into his universe has built order and design into the salvation of souls by, by which means the body of Christ is being brought into being. So ultimately when we come to the end of Ephesians 1, what is the purpose of it all? Yes, it's for the praise of his glory. Yes, it's for the pleasure of God. But ultimately, it's so that that church might be the fullness of him that filleth all in all. What a wonderful thing it is to be saved, isn't it? And to understand something of the mighty work by which we have been saved. So that when you come into chapter 2, the process is going to be described. How is it that the people who are the objects of divine purpose and who are going to be made like Christ and are going to know the adoption of sons, how can that happen? Because they're dead in trespasses and sins. They stand guilty and condemned before God. And so Paul explains in chapter 2, not only how Jew and Gentile have been reconciled together, but ultimately how you and me have been reconciled unto God. And how was it? By means of the cross. By means of the cross. A cross death, death by crucifixion, is not natural. Death by crucifixion is never accidental. Death by crucifixion is judicial. So that the cross of Christ is all about God's judgment upon man according to the flesh. It's the declaration of righteous judgment against man in the flesh. We heard this morning from Brother Bill about that threefold enemy that keeps cropping up in so many ways and places in Scripture. You'll see it there in Ephesians chapter 2. That they walked according to the course of this world, the direction of this world. According to the prince of the power of the air. They followed the lusts of the flesh. There they all are. That's natural man. The world, the flesh, the devil. And he's under the grip of them all. And Paul says it was in the body of his death. Body of his flesh. 
through death that the Lord Jesus delivered us. It's by means of the cross. You could come across to the Galatian epistle. And in chapter 2, Paul teaches them how they were delivered from the power of the devil. There's a moral order in Galatians. How were they delivered from the power of the devil? How were you and I delivered from the power of the devil? I was crucified with Christ. Now, we haven't time in this session to go into it. I hope I'm not stealing Brother Bill's time just now. But you'll understand this, that Calvary wasn't all about Christ dying for you. Now, Christ did die for you. As a believer, you can say, who his own self, with Peter, who his own self bore our sins in his own body on the tree. Yes, Christ did die for you. And his death for you was what delivered you from the penalty of your sins. But read on in the Roman epistle. Come to chapter 6. And chapter 6 of Romans is not teaching that Christ died for me. It's teaching that I died with Christ. It was my death with Christ, judicially, that delivered me once and for all from the power of the devil. I am crucified with Christ. You take the place of a believer. Well, you've been crucified with Christ. That old order of man to which you belong by natural birth terminated at Calvary. And that became true in your experience the moment you were saved. Crucified with Christ. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. The power of the devil over me is finished. When I come to chapter 5 of Galatians, I find this. That those that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the lusts and the affections thereof. Now, a man can never triumph over the flesh until he's been released from the bondage of the devil. So we're released from the bondage of the devil in Galatians 2. We now triumph over the flesh in Galatians chapter 5. And we do it, we are the crucifiers. That is, we are exercising judgment upon the lusts and the affections of the flesh. We are now, to use the expression of the Colossian epistle, we are now reckoning ourselves dead. Well, that's Romans 6. But we're also, in truth, with the Colossian epistle, recognizing that we have died with Christ, we're now raised with Christ, we're seated with Christ, as Ephesians teaches, and now, having been risen with him, that we must seek and set our affections upon those things that are above. So the person who hasn't known deliverance from the power of the devil will never get victory over the flesh. But you died with Christ. Now you have to reckon it. You have to live it. And you have to recognize that unique package which is you. Now your problems are not mine. Unfortunately, my problems aren't yours. We all have our individual battles with the flesh. And there's things appeal to me that don't appeal to you and vice versa. But you have to recognize them. You have to deal with them. Brutally. Judicially. Then you come into chapter 6 of Galatians. God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ whereby the world is crucified unto me. And I unto the world. Now we're not good at that, are we brethren? Are we going to be honest today? We're not good at it, are we? But it's a fact if we're believers that we have been delivered from the power of the devil. 
And we have the spirit-given ability to judicially deal with the things of the flesh. And only the believer who's learned to deal with the flesh is going to know victory over the world. And that's why that world system that would love for you to put your hand in its hand, have fellowship with us. That hand of the world system is stained with the blood of your Savior and mine. Paul says you can't have it both ways. That world system has been crucified unto us. God's dealt with it. And we are dead as far as that world system is concerned. You see, we've fallen into a trap perhaps of thinking today that providing we walk a a, a course of action that just keeps us a certain distance from the world, just enough so that we're not in bother with our brethren. That's not the standard. See, this this world is on a, a massive downward course, and if all you do is keep your distance from it, you're still going down. So if ever there was a day when you and I should stand out as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's today. Now this is real. And the Lord will hold you responsible because you've sat under this teaching today and you know what's going on in your life as a professing Christian. And if there's things that need to be sorted out, you now have at least the start of a doctrinal basis upon which to do it. The cross of Christ means you have been delivered from the devil. And you have the capacity to deal with the flesh and of how you must treat that world. Brother Bill, I'm sorry I went on so long. God bless his word.